Hello, and welcome to In All Things, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a global movement of Evangelical Presbyterian Churches. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, stated clerk of the EPC. Our prayer is that God uses Dean and his guests to both inform and inspire you about how God is working in and through the EPC. The motto of our family of churches is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And thank you, Rachel. It is a delight to be with each of you again this day, and, and thank you for the gift of your time. Uh, we know that there are things you could be doing when you're on the treadmill or driving in your car or however it is that you take in podcasts, but the fact that you've made room to listen in to ours is a gift to us, and uh, we just want you to know how much we appreciate it. So we're, we're glad that you've joined us today, and today marks a day of a, a special conversation for me personally because of the person who's in the studio with us, but also it marks a shift a little bit in the way in which we're doing the In All Things podcast for the EPC. Up until now, almost all of our podcasts have focused on some of the incredible people God has called to serve the EPC, particularly in the office of the General Assembly. We've talked about world missions, and we've talked about human resources and communication and digital strategies, and we've talked about governance and polity. And so we've had all of these different topics and ways in which the office of the General Assembly serves the EPC. We hope that those have been helpful to you in terms of getting to know the staff and their hearts and the ways in which God is using them to build up the kingdom. We hope that just at least opens the door for you to experience the the reality that we exist to serve the church. That's the EPC, Office of the General Assembly, does not exist for itself. It has no desire to become a, a large entity in and of itself. It exists, a small group exists to serve the presbyteries and to serve our congregations. But this marks a shift in our podcast because today, EPC authors, people who have written things that would be a blessing and a benefit to the church, I get these things mailed to me all the time where people send me books either in process that they want me to read and comment on or give an affirmation to, or people who've concluded a book that they, they want me to be aware of or platform for the EPC and a broader audience. I have a whole shelf full of them down in my office. So um, we're going to start working through some of those books on the shelf and some of those authors who are our own beloved. We want to invite them in to share how God has led them to write and speak and share those gifts with a larger audience that maybe hasn't had the benefit of being blessed by them before. So I can't think of a better person to start that off with today than my favorite author. And I say he's my favorite author not just because uh, he's my one of my BFFs. I, I absolutely love this man with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I love his, his family. I particularly love his dogs. And his dogs particularly love me. Uh, so it's a, we have this great relationship. But I say it because I think of a, a phrase by Sarah Groves in one of her albums called Add to the Beauty. And she has a line that says this, This is grace, an invitation to be beautiful. I've been reflecting more on beauty and how God reveals himself and forms and shapes us according to himself. And that perhaps we, we don't think about beauty uh, the way we ought to. We, we, if we pay attention to it at all, it's usually very corrupted and very distorted. But this person that you're going to hear from today, in my life, he's added to the beauty. 
by the way he speaks, by the way he writes, by his personhood. So I'm delighted to have in the studio today my good friend Garrett Dawson. Dr. Garrett Dawson is the senior pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He has served in that capacity for 17 plus years. It is one of those sweetheart churches where he loves his people and his people love him. And sometimes it's a little bit gross. When you're there, they just love on each other so much. It's just overwhelming. But it is a beautiful picture of the way a pastor and a congregation can come together in a marriage, really, that is for the purpose of the bride herself, the beautiful bride, the kingdom. I love visiting there. I love sitting under Garrett's preaching, any opportunity I can. And he's written two books that that I have read and been blessed by, and there's one coming out, sort of, that we're going to talk about in just a minute. So uh, first of all, Garrett, welcome to In All Things, and we're so grateful to have you here at the EPC Global Command Center. Thanks, Dean. It's wonderful to be here with you and even to reply to that wonderful introduction that of the many gifts of yours that I admire in terms of leadership and compassion, there's one gift that I realize I'm kind of jealous about, and that's your way with my dogs. Um, (laughs) My little terrier tries to deceive me that I'm her favorite, but then when I see you, I realize it's not so. And the times that I've stayed at your house, she has actually come in, slept with me in the bed and has left you behind. I realize that. Yes. So, and it's a beautiful thing. Well, that's another discussion for another day. So, well, let's talk about, you know, you're a pastor of a larger church. Your life is full and busy with family and, and activities, whether it's sermon preparation or leading a robust staff and caring for this great congregation. And yet somehow you find the time in your schedule to, to write. The Blessed Life and Raising Adam are, are the two that I was referring to earlier. I really want to drill down, especially on Raising Adam, if we could a little bit later. But I, I certainly want you to platform both of those books because I couldn't recommend them more highly to people, especially as we're coming into the Lenten season. I would love for people to take advantage of those resources. But what is it that's led you as a pastor to also be a writer? I think it's wonderful to be allowed to be a pastor and called to it. Um, you get this kind of fire in you that you want to read God's word and then express back what, what you have seen. So for me, preaching or teaching is a form of praise to say, I've, I'm so enamored with this one that is described in scripture, this beautiful Jesus, that I want to say things back to him that are, are beautiful. And then there's this sense of, and I really want to share it with people. It's not meant to be kept to myself. If I remember correctly, and forgive me if I get this wrong after all these years, but your undergraduate degree is, weren't you English? I was English. At, at Vanderbilt, yeah. right? Right. So mm-hmm. you've taken this gift that God has given you, you've cultivated it. And I do find, um, I've become a big Wendell Berry guy here in the last number of months. And I think what I find compelling about him is that his language is so beautiful. It inviting me to be more thoughtful in terms of the way I speak about things. And I've actually had this kind of renaissance in my soul of caring more about beautiful language. That may not be evident in my day-to-day speech, but I'm, I'm working on it. That is the, one of the ways I would describe your writing, is that when I read, for example, Raising Adam, you're taking a, a theological concept that honestly is not that well explored by most people, and you not only make it really accessible, but it's the language you choose to present it actually invites me into the beauty of this most sacred of days. So talk to us about, if we could start with Raising Adam. What led you to write that book? What's its big idea? Why would I be encouraging people to read it? 
I think maybe a first thing to say is that we have such a beautiful, wonderful, rich treasure house of 2,000 years of Christian thought and reflection. The liturgies, the prayers, the theology of the fathers and the reformers. And we tend to just skim along the top of that. Mm. So my kind of quest to want to know Jesus more deeply and see his beauty more leads me to want to be an excavator. Mm. Um, in, in many ways, I feel like a big part of my calling is to excavate from the treasure house of, of Christian praise and shine it off and then present it to people today and say, look at this treasure that is ours in Christ. It's so much more than we normally think about who Jesus is and what he is. So you did actually excavate something like you excavated Holy Saturday. I mean, and honestly, I think most people, if if they're honest, Holy Week is Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and and Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. People skip right over (laughs) Saturday and yet you have excavated some real beautiful gems over the history and life of the church, both in Scripture, which is so wonderful because the Scripture actually says quite a bit, but then also in terms of church history. So what, what is it that you found when you went digging there? Just to recover the sense that God, the triune God, intentionally left space and time between 3 o'clock on Friday when Jesus died and the early morning of Easter Sunday when we saw him again, and that He was raised on the third day, not on the second day or the first day. So to come to realize as we think about our redemption in dramatic terms, the events of Jesus to save us, his sinless life, his atoning death, his mighty resurrection, that in between those two is this spacer that literally in the center of the gospel sits the silence of Holy Saturday. So unpack that for me a little bit sits in the center of the gospel is the silence of Holy Saturday. Dig down a little deeper. What do we find there in the silence? Yeah, well, Just to set it up, in Corinthians 15, when Paul says, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that the third day he rose. We, we lacked the first and third of those, but the second one, that he was buried, that he, he's, he was this there in the realm of the dead, his soul, in the tomb, his body, and that for the disciples, this was an agonizing weight of it looked like all had been lost. The fact that he had predicted his resurrection probably didn't play into their emotions very much. He was gone, the dream was shattered, and for you know, at least 24 hours, maybe to 36 hours, everything had ended. Everything was black, everything was bleak. So to begin to think about what does that mean to us worshipfully, experientially, theologically, to sit with that space between Good Friday and Easter, isn't it interesting that we're just not, we don't like sitting in that space. That's not an uncomfortable place for us. We want to rush right from the agony of Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday. And there's something about that space that is uncomfortable to us. Do you think that's, how does that, that uncomfortableness, that silence, that unnerving sense that he is among the dead, how does that actually, how is that a gift to us? Well, sure, we don't like it. I mean, generally, we're more like kids or grandkids who are playing with action figures. You know, Spider-Man falls off, he dies, and then immediately he's up again. You know, <laughs> right. There is no sense of lament or mourning. To sit in lament, to, to feel the loss, as opposed to blaming someone else or becoming hopeless, is difficult for us. But the fact that Jesus decided to undergo that time of being suspended between death and victory tells us that 
he actually understands what it's like to live in a Holy Saturday world, you know, a world where the victory has been won, but it's not yet been consummated, and we are waiting. We're waiting for you know, the whole world to emerge out of the tomb in new creation. And that's where we find ourselves. That's where the majority of our life is actually lived. All the time. Um, you think of that macro level, but if you take it to the individual level, there is this church father, Macarius, Macarius, however you say it, who said that every time you think of Jesus descending to the dead or descending into hell as an event in his life, realize that if you have been joined to him, if you've been saved, Christ has descended into the hell of your own heart. Uh, he's gone into the depths of the darkness of, of your ugly, disgusting sin and descended there in order, in a sense, to retrieve you from death and darkness and restore you to life. I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this before, but I've always been stunned. I've been to Israel twice, and I'm, I'm stunned at the visual aids that Jesus makes it, it takes advantage of uh, when he's speaking about, you know, on this rock I will build my church and so forth. You know, there's this huge boulders right where he would have been talking. But the descended to the dead, when you visit Caiaphas's house, the high priest, he has a prison below the, the house, but then at the depths of that prison, is it would have been more like a, a water cistern of sorts where there's, the only opening is this thin hole at the beginning. And literally, as you approach Caiaphas's house, there's this mosaic on the side of the house. It's kind of Byzantine in its, in its angular focus, but there's ropes underneath Jesus's arms where he was being lowered down into this dark cistern. Wow. And you, you get to walk down. They have steps now. You can walk down into the cistern. And the one time I was there... The guide, not supposed to do this, he, he managed to turn off all the lights. Oh, spooky. And it was dark, dark, you know, and you were in the depths. And then the most phenomenal thing is he explained to us as we came up from the depths that actually Caiaphas's house is built on the side of a hill. And the hill, if you went out and down the hill, it, it was Gehenna was right there. Unbelievable. So he literally was descending into the dead when they dropped him down in that cistern. So he actually did, in a sense, physically do what what we talk about in this greater sense, which is his his the, the personhood of Jesus, his body, though maybe lying in the tomb, descends into hell. There's a sense to which he actually did that. It's it's right. real. Prior, yeah. Yeah. That's so that, that's that's one of the stunning if you ever get to Israel, it's one of the stunning uh, I think you would probably want to spend hours there just meditating. Wallowing in the yeah. in the despair of it. Yeah. So I recommend Raising Adam, I think, especially going into Lent, I think it's really would be rich reading for someone. I read it during Holy Week, the first year it came out, and it really transformed my uh, experience during Holy Week, made it so much more meaningful for me. But you guys at, at First Presbyterian Baton Rouge, you every year, at least for like eight or nine years, you've done like a a Lenten kind of in-house study slash book. It's much more than a devotional guide. It's much deeper than that. But you've got one coming out this year that you're kind of excited about. And why don't you talk a little bit about that? Ham, we've had a, a wonderful tradition. South Louisiana has a high, high Catholic population. So the idea of doing something for Lent is, is strong with us. But for us to think not of taking away something like sugar or wine, but to add something, a, a deeper focus on Christ. Um, so we've gotten a good tradition here of taking some aspect of Christ and his redemption and focusing on that daily for 42 days. 
and you excavated the scriptures and you found something that you feel like maybe you didn't really see before or notice before. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this year the book is called Asking Jesus What We Requested and How He Replied. I had never looked at the life story of Jesus in terms of the recorded questions that we had for him or the requests that we made or the questions that demons asked him or that the authorities asked him. But it wasn't hard to find 42 questions in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and to think through how Jesus replied to those and what insight happens when we realize what they asked, those are the same questions and requests I ask and that I have. And then to see Jesus reply takes me right into the drama and the dialogue. So I don't want to give away the book, but give us an example. Can you can you pull out one question that was asked that the way it was asked and the way he responded would be one of those takeaways that you go, oh my gosh, that's the question I would ask. Two quick ones. Sure. First question that was asked of him in terms of his chronology was when he was 12 and he stayed behind at the temple. And so the first recorded question of Jesus was, son, why have you treated us this way? <laughs> Now, I've said that to my children. Numerous times. So from the get-go, even those who loved him were trying to deflect Jesus from his mission, to love the Father on our behalf and to care for the world. So there's a number of questions where we're, I'm constantly trying to deflect Jesus from his mission and just have him take care of my comfort. But maybe more poignantly, um, in the story of, of the raising of Jairus' daughter in Mark's version, Jairus' 12-year-old daughter was, was sick unto death, but... Jairus asked the question, Lord, my little girl is reaching towards her end. Mm. Won't you come and lay your hands on her that she might be made well and live? Of course, that was a question about a physical illness, but for any of us who worry and struggle over our own children, the sense of saying, um, I see a child that's reaching towards, towards deathliness, towards despair, towards an end. But if your hands were just upon her or upon him, to make her well, then she could live. She could step back out into life. And so a question like that for Jesus from a concerned father had all kinds of resonance for me and yeah. I think for all of us. Yeah, those are, those are prayers we would pray for our children, right? When we see our children making choices that are destructive choices, choices that actually are taking them further away from the life that is truly life. And you say, oh my gosh, they're reaching toward their end. What a beautiful way of describing that. And then to say to pray that prayer, that they would, they would be restored. Uh, yeah. It's just lovely. So, Do you have any counsel you might give to those who are listening in? Maybe we could give somebody uh, something to think about so that Lent is more purposeful and meaningful this year. I would say to commit ourselves to pursuing Jesus uh, as he's revealed in the Gospels in a more intentional way each day of Lent. You can go to our website and sign up to receive the daily readings uh, by email every day. That's What's free. the website address? Do you so um, the First Presbyterian Church of Baton Rouge, it's fpcbr.org. Okay. okay, or they could Google it or fpcbr. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, okay. Or we could send you a physical copy just for the cost of shipping. Okay, what about the Blessed Life and uh, Raising Adam? How would people get a hold of those if they wanted to order them? Oh, well, that would be grand. I think Amazon is the, the fastest way to do that or okay. whatever bookseller you like to use. Okay, sounds good. Well, I highly encourage people to consider doing both of those things. I think you'll be edified in the reading. And uh, if you don't already have a plan or your church doesn't have something as a resource for this Lent, maybe asking Jesus and joining the good people at First Presbyterian Baton Rouge would be a, a, a delight. So. 
be glad to have you. All right. Well, thank you, Garrett. It's a gift to me to have you here, and I trust a gift to our larger church family, and we look forward to having you back again, hopefully one day in the near future. Thank you. It's wonderful to be together. Well, folks, I hope you found that conversation today as rich and as uh, fruitful as, as I did. I, I sometimes feel that I'm being a little selfish and in inviting people on that I just want to talk to and listen to and enjoy, and hopefully as you listen in over our shoulders, it's a blessing to you as well. In order to bless you as we depart, as we always do, let me give you this reminder from God's sacred word. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, for he is the head of the body, the church. And you and I are part of that all things, my friends. It's only in him that we can hold together. Until the next time that we are together, we wish you grace and peace from your brothers and sisters of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of Dean and the entire team, we hope you will join us for our next episode of In All Things. For more information about the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.